As a chef, I live to create. The process of turning raw product or ingredients into a finished expression of an idea or a thought is really gratifying and pretty addictive. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to meet lots of people who are obsessed with this creative process. Musicians, artists, designers, architects, and others all share this common bond, a specific yet undefined vision delivered to a trusting audience. Like you, I like to know what a creator was thinking when they set to work with only this sacred promise of their public. That promise? I'll leave it up to you, chef. This podcast will explore the gaps between the start, the finish, and the why. I'm Neil Brown, and this is Omakase. All right, so admittedly, uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast was because um, I am as much a fan of food as I am a chef, and I am as much of a fanboy of chefs um, as I am a cook, right? Um, so I, you know, I just really one of the reasons I wanted to do this so I could meet other um, other chefs. Um, and have sort of a reason to have a conversation with them because, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to maybe give you some exposure here. Will you talk to me? Um, it's an evil ploy. Um, I don't care um, because I think it's uh, symbiotic and whatever. Um, but um, it uh, speaks to uh, our guest today on Omakase um, Ryan Santos is a guy that uh, I have followed now for a few years. Um, I f- have followed him in the sense that um, I pay close attention to his Instagram, um, which makes me fucking creepy, I guess. But um, I-, I think if we're all honest, we do that, right? That's acceptable these days. So um, I follow his Instagram pretty closely. I um, He's one of the few chefs where when I see one of his dishes, I will um, expand, you know, like expand the picture on Instagram so I can like try to like dissect it mentally and like see what he did, right? Um, So um, yeah, so Ryan Santos is uh, a chef, a restaurateur. He owns a restaurant in Cincinnati called Please. Um, I've been to Please uh, three times, twice I've eaten. Um, once I just stopped in very quickly, I was there for a meeting and I stopped in very quickly, um, for a cocktail, which was just lovely. Um, I think one of the really interesting things that they do at please is, um, they put as much of a focus on their cocktail program, um, as they do on their food program. And I think their cocktail program is really elegant and somehow, uh, is so appropriate. Um, I'll, I'll have to ask him if he is sort of the mastermind behind a lot of these cocktails because I always feel like it's so um, relevant to what their aesthetic is in that restaurant that I I find it hard to believe that um, there's like a a couple bartenders back there making these. I think he's got a hand in it, but we'll find out. Um, So 
yeah, his food is um, is whimsical. Uh, his food is um, sometimes very serious. Uh, like there there are some dishes that I see that I'm like, man, this is you know this is world class food. This is you know you throw this in a restaurant in Copenhagen and uh, you know you're looking at some Michelin stars, right? So. Um, I, I just think he's a fascinating guy. I think um, he's a, he's notoriously very quiet. Um, I think he's even described himself as an introvert, which uh, really shouldn't be that surprising these days for chefs. Chefs are more introverted I, than I think most people think they are. Um, he is, I think he's very cerebral. Um, I think, um, you know, he thinks about food in a very uh, intellectual way. Um, so I'm really excited to have him on. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, he's a fascinating guy um, just outside of being a chef. I think he's just a really fascinating person. He's got a design background. I think he is innately creative. Um, and so, yeah, I hope you enjoy this. And uh, let's get on with it. Ryan Santos of Please in Cincinnati. Hey, <laughs> what's up, man? What, what's going on? <laughs> How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping through the hoops, man. I appreciate it. Of course. So, um, how's Good. it going? What do you? What do you? Is is today your day off? Yeah, I'm off Mondays and Tuesdays. Is that right? So, your but your restaurant's open on Tuesdays, right? Wednesday through Sunday right now. Oh, is that right? So you do a um, you do a, a brunch. Do you still do brunch, fried chicken and rosé on? We Sundays? don't do fried chicken and rosé anymore. We actually over the summer moved that to Saturday afternoons, and so we were doing a double service, um, and then started doing Sunday brunch after th- almost three years of reluctance of doing it. Yeah. Are you still reluctant about about brunch? No, I mean, we've been doing it for, I'd say, about a month and a half on Sunday mornings. Um, it's cool. I, yeah. I don't know. It gives me yeah. a way to, like, sometimes ideas aren't, like, um, dishes or ideas aren't really the right fit for our dinner menu. Um, so it gives me a place to sort of put those um, instead of just kind of scrapping them and saying that they just don't work at the restaurant. Right. Yeah. As, yeah. As opposed to just abandoning the idea, you might have a place for it at yeah, brunch. Yeah, exactly. What, um, what's the last dish that you did that where, where that worked out for you? The last dish that worked out to cooking for brunch instead We're, of on the regular menu? Yeah. 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 Um, we sort of do like a, uh, kind of like a steam egg or like a chawan mushi at, at brunch, um, just because mm-hmm. we're not really set up to to cook eggs to order at the restaurant. Our line's super super small. Um, it's something I always thought about doing at dinner, but just never seemed to have the right fit. Um, and it seemed like the the smartest way for us to kind of do an egg dish for brunch um, without having to sort of order fire scrambled eggs or fried eggs or, you know, whatever the person might want. So. Right. Yeah. What's, um, tell me about your chawan mushi. 
I I love chawanmushi. By the way, it's one of my favorite egg preparations. I wish people in the uh, in the states would embrace it <laughs> yeah, a little right. more. But yeah, well, that was the thing. I didn't. It's think phenomenal. People, it, it didn't seem like something people would jump on at dinner that made it worth kind of putting on the menu. Um, yeah, so it gives that like warm egg thing for for brunch. Um, it sort of rotates. It's always got some sort of you know marinated, braised, and kind of lacto fermented shiitake element. Um, usually sort of whatever crispy things we have at the restaurant at the moment. Um, anywhere from crispy shallots to sunchoke chips to capers to whatever. Um, yes. And then some sort of, you know, sort of green element. You know, it's, it, it's sort of the like egg and side salad thing, but um, all in a bowl. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, so, all right. So let's, let's, Let's take sure. a step back. Um, tell me, tell me where you started cooking. Where, where, what was your first sort of professional cooking gig? Uh, my first professional cooking job was in Cleveland um, at a place called Tartine Bistro. Um, mm-hmm. I had just kind of finished up um, school, uh, college, and then headed home uh, because I was, I was relatively sick. I've kind of struggled with Crohn's disease for most of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. sort of like crawled to the finish line of graduating college with it. Um, and so went home to sort of recoup and catch up on some doctor stuff and just sort of get back on my feet a bit. Um, and grew up about an hour south of Cleveland. So I kind of knew the Cleveland food scene, um, and just was sort of having, having no real cooking experience other than, you know, sort of working the combination dishwasher slash fryer job in high school. Um, kind of just kept watching Craigslist for ads and, and that sort of thing um, and found this little French bistro um, sort of out slightly out in the suburbs of, of Cleveland uh, with a chef named Nolan Konkoski, uh who I thought was doing really cool stuff. He worked at, he, he ran Mom- uh, Momocho in Cleveland for a long time under Eric. And, you know, at the time I thought he just was really talented and, and, somebody I would love to learn under. And so sort of just cold emailed him and said, Hey, I have zero cooking experience. You know, I give a shit though. I want to learn, you know, can I come in and try? And he sort of said, you know, he, he was interesting and he came from the same sort of background of, you know, went to school for literature and, and then came into cooking. Um, so he gave me, he said, you know, come in for two or three days. If it works out, great. Um, if not, you know, no offense, but we'll just kind of move, move <laughs> along. Right. So move on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I ended up being there for two years. Um, it was a tiny, sounds like things went pretty yeah, well. I mean, I, you know, looking back, I had no idea what I was doing, but was super receptive and open and willing to put my head down and work hard. It was French bistro is a great place to not know what you're doing though. Right. Great. In- great intro sort of position. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was like. I, it was a little strategic on my part of like, okay, if I'm going to learn how to cook, I should probably learn how to, you know, learn French, some sort of French technique first. Um, and it was great. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it, the kitchen was even, and it probably is some sort of inspiration on my kitchen now is even smaller than our kitchen that please. I mean, it was tiny, tiny, tiny. Really? Um, yeah. I've seen your kitchen. Your, your kitchen's pretty tiny. And it was probably half the size of ours. Um, just like wow. I was with a, prep, a, a small prep kitchen in, in the basement as well. Um, so I just, you know, 
there were only three or four of us in the kitchen in total, including Nolan. Um, so I got a lot of one-on-one time with him and, you know, was fortunate enough that he took the time to sort of guide and teach and show and, you know, start understanding all these basic intro French culinary techniques. Yeah. Then, so, so then where? Um, after that, I went to Pittsburgh and I was on the opening team of Salt of the Earth. It was um, Kevin Sousa's uh, first kind of major project. Mm-hmm. Um, and was really drawn to that uh, because of his creativity um, and sort of knowing that's what I you know, wanted to do before I kind of got into cooking. Um, because, you know, that was sort of the, when was this, like early 2000s, sort of the heyday of, you know, uh, cooks and chefs blogging about everything they're doing and, and yeah. sort of fell in love with cooking and, and, and through some trials of, you know, with my health of being put on these insanely restrictive diets um, and having to learn how to cook at home by scratch for myself because it was sort of before the prevalence of Whole Foods or anything you know, or anybody having any sort of like gluten-free aisle or dairy-free options or any of these things. Um, I learned how to cook at home from scratch uh, for myself and sort of fell in love with it. You know, I kind of grew up in the typical Midwest household where mom and and dad kind of made food and food really wasn't a thought of how it actually lands at the dinner table for me Uh, until I was in college and, and started cooking for myself and not only seeing, you know, you know, I came from a tiny, tiny town in, in Northeast Ohio. So, you know, being exposed to Indian food and, and things like this sort of really broadened my, my, my perspective on food very quickly in college and then being sick and learning how to have to cook for myself. Um, found a passion there. And, and I know this is sort of off topic, but I promise it'll loop back around. Um, and then diving in the early days of like, food culture on the internet you know there was like sean brock had his blog and sam mason had his blog and like the food that at wd50 and sam mason were doing at taylor were just like holy shit like this is insane you know what i mean like i didn't know like that this existed you know at first it was like yeah diving through like you know um nancy silverton books and stuff like that and and you know uh very kind of american legendary chefs, but still very farm to table or sort of classic kind of cooking. And then seeing that there was this food culture that was like blowing my mind, you know, obviously there were El Bulli and things like this happening in the world earlier than that, but this was sort of like, yeah, but ideas and food, Sean Brock, they were all bringing it. Yeah. I just like, it just blew my mind that you could like make food that was creative and different and interesting and sort of like, where my head was at with being in school, you know, going to school for graphic design and sort of missing the tactile aspect of, of creating things, you know, the first year or two in in art school and design school, you're making things by hand and then all of a sudden it's all on the computer. Um, And then seeing these chefs, not only making super inspiring and creative food, but also like being very open source about it um, that you could dig around. And if you could find these, ingredients or at the time you know hydrocolloids or whatever um you could make these things you could make you these did. you, you can make these things in, in your like five bedroom eight person apartment in college like you could do this at home you know what i mean it was like this sort of 
I, I'm sure it happened for other people, but like sort of revolution in terms of like transitioning into cooking of seeing that you could be creative and you could share and you could sort of like do these, do these things, you know what I mean? Um, that there weren't yeah. sort of limitations of classic cuisine uh, happening, even though I, I sort of jumped in at a very classical start. Um, that sort of crazy creative thing that was happening some other place than, you know, Ohio <laughs> really like sparked from a passion to like a insane sort of obsession with cooking. Yeah, it was it was Brave New World, right? I mean, McCready's was on the cutting edge. And um, I mean, if you can believe, you know, I mean, a, a cutting edge restaurant in Charleston, which is frankly where I I went to school. Um, that's where I sort of came up at Johnson and Wales down there. And that wasn't happening when I was there. You know, you're right. <laughs> it was it was it was shrimp and right. grits. <laughs> so to see that this world um existed sort of like that aspect sort of really, really kind of fueled the fire. So after being in Cleveland at Tartine for two years, I saw Kevin doing these pop-ups in, in, in Pittsburgh um, and was sort of taking a lot of those techniques and sort of, you know, making them his own and, and super, I was just had to go there. Right. So, um, and it was close, you know what I mean? Still kind of struggling with my health. It wasn't like I was going to, moved to New York or San Sebastian or wherever. Um, so I went and joined Kevin's team uh, and opened Salt of the Earth with him and everybody else as, you know, a garmache cook. Um, and it was amazing. It was awesome. I mean, it was, it, what blew my mind there was the level of, at the time, um, creativity, but also the, like the speed and the amount of covers that we would do. So, so um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, how many seats? Oh, I don't remember. Nine, big uh, not huge, but also much bigger than my current restaurant. I'd say like, I don't know, 75, 90, a hundred, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, it, it fascinated me that we could be creative, but we also had to, um, execute, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't be those people you saw on videos online of like, spending eight minutes <laughs> tweezing every little leaf, you know what I mean? And, and that experience definitely defined me for the rest of my career, for sure. Um, and I was there not super long. I'd say a little under a year because my health sort of kicked back in and sort of sidelined me back, back to my parents' house to sort of recuperate and, you know, deal with my Crohn's disease and get, sort of get back on my feet. Yeah. Um, which has always sort of been a present thing in, in my life of uh, the physical nature and the stress of, of restaurant industry is like the worst thing that you could, <laughs> that you can it do really with is. like a, yeah. you know, an autoimmune disease like Crohn's. It's just the number one thing they ask you to dial back. Um, yep. And I was like constantly between, you know, even the, graphic design at the time were long hours and stress and deadlines and stuff like that. They were, it was a different sort of stress. It wasn't so much like on your feet all day stress, but sort of high demand, high execution, short deadlines, all with a creative sort of bent to it. Um, and then moving into food, it was, you know, a, a, a different, but similar, just fast paced, quick deadline, high intensity sort of thing. <laughs> I just keep falling and falling stress. into these, you know, 
these routes that are the, probably the worst thing for my Crohn's disease. So, I mean, even, so how, how, how are ahead. you managing that these days? How, I mean, how's that, how's that for you? Now? It's good. I mean, um, it's been stable for a couple years now, I'd, you know, since the restaurant opened, um, I'm finding myself, you know, kind of, we're about to hit year three, um, in the last maybe two months of trying to step back a little bit. I, I feel the toll of almost three straight years of, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 hour work weeks, um, yeah. all in a row of, you know, for the first year and a half, I was there open to close every day just because I was and That's yeah, and, and still open some days and still close some days, but realizing that if I can get that down to like 50 to 60, that would be a, a little more manageable for my health. Um, and lucky, luckily, you know, currently I, I kind of have a team that sort of tells me to go away and take care of myself. Um, That's yeah. Wonderful. So, the, you know, I've been fortunate that as sort of, I'm, I'm hitting that, that physical wall with my health, um, that I have the team in place that can kind of let me do that so that it doesn't become more serious. Yeah, that's, that's great to have those people in your professional life, right? That kind of take care of you. That's one of the, one of the beautiful things about restaurants. It is. It's amazing. Um, and it's always a challenging thing at, at Please because we're such a small restaurant. You can't have like backups on backups of, of cooks and, and chefs. You know, we run pretty yeah. lean just because we have to. And, uh, uh, you know, I stay involved because we have to. We can't have, uh, you know, a CDC as ex-chef, uh, uh, three sous chefs, and then four line cooks. Like it just it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah. the economics don't work. So, out you know, unfortunately yeah. there are times where, you know, um, that tight staffing gets really tight. And, you know, I was on a station for two months waiting for the right people to come in and that sort of thing. And then, so I've learned to, you know, when the opportunities for me to take, you know, two nights off a week or something, I jump on those these days instead of sort of, hard-headedly stick around when I, when I'm not necessarily needed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it sounds like you're, um, you're moderating your work. You know, it sounds like you're being mindful about the amount of work that you're putting in, which is, um, I think these days an accomplishment for, a lot I'm trying of to be now it took two and a half years to sort of get to this place after opening the restaurant. Yeah. But like, you know, if, if I'm going to continue to be, and, you know, the crazy other thing is I'm not just the chef, I'm the owner too. So, you know, I do payroll, I do scheduling, yeah. I do liquor orders, wine, you know, the sort of whole thing um, while trying to maintain being creative and guide the kitchen and all those sort of things. So um, stepping back and, 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 and kind of tailoring all those responsibilities it has been great, but, you know, I'm still super active in the restaurant and in the, in the kitchen and having to be a creative, the kind of creative energy behind the restaurant. You know, there's a couple of cooks that we have that contribute. That's amazing. And I always try and push more people to kind of put their own thing on the menu and, and kind of work together on it and, and sort of make sure it, if it doesn't. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling. Um, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's really great, man. I mean, it's, 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 I'm glad to hear that you are, it just sounds to me like you're, you're still enjoying cooking and still being creative. And, 
Um, so, so, you know, I, I wanted to jump in there because how, you know, I find, uh, at least for myself, um, the administrative side of a restaurant is so counter to our sort of our strengths, right? What we do well. The what is, I'm right? sorry, it the broke chefs, up just I a little bit. Tending. The administrative sure. work, the, the payroll, you know, writing, sitting down, writing checks, uh, you know, working through budgets, et cetera. That stuff, how do, you, how do you reconcile those things? Because I think a lot of chefs that, that I know have a really difficult time reconciling those two parts. I, for instance, I can tell you, um, I, I try to get as many people involved in the administrative side of the restaurants as I possibly can because I'm just so notoriously bad at it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I would, I would be very happy staying, um, in the creative role, you know, my right. whole life. Um, but as a business owner, you don't really have that luxury. So how do you, I mean, how do you do it? I mean, I think if some of it is, is just because it's mandatory, you know, it's always, it's always been sort of my dialogue that, you know, the restaurant is, is a bit different than everything else in Cincinnati, um, or sort of even in this sort of surrounding regional area, um, that, you know, I'm lucky that, that my backers and, and investors sort of give me carte blanche into doing whatever I want and they don't really tinker or meddle or make suggestions or anything. Um, and so the rule of thumb has been, you know, with new cooks or cooks who've been there for a while, it's like, we can, we can do anything that we want. Right. But it has to hit sort of two marks. One, it has to be delicious and, and not just delicious for us, but like our moms and dads or uncles have to come in and not think this is so weird or creative or out of their scope. It, it can't be chef delicious. It sort of has to be a little broader audience delicious. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that it has to be boring or anything, but if we're going to use, you know, unknown ingredients or some esoteric things, we have to treat them in a way that makes sense to the average day diner because quote unquote foodies don't make up our entire clientele, uh, nor do cooks and chefs. So, um, if we abandon those, like then, you know, we're not in the place where we can, we're cool with cooking for 12 diners a night to cook whatever we want creatively. Right. So that's one aspect into it. Like it's, we can put anything we want on the menu, but it has to make sense on the business side. Um, because if we're creative just to be creative, then this place closes in a year. You know what I mean? From day one, you know what <laughs> right, I mean? Like it, right. it, you can be creative as I want. And I really, that's the one thing I really try and hit home with the cooks is like, no matter what we do and, and it can be as, the ingredients can be expensive as they need to be or as mundane and cheap as they need to be. But like, we can't just put it out there and charge nothing. You know what I mean? It has like, it all sort of has to hit these markers of making business sense and also making clientele sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I it has about to, it as there's being... not, a, you know what I mean? Like that's the reason that it, I, I have to stay involved yeah, because it has, it has to. to, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. If it doesn't, you're, you're yeah. I mean, this is, I, I'm very fortunate to have the investor group that I have, but they're not, you know, the money is that they put in is the money that they put in and you know, the money that I put in. There's not uh, an angel investor that's sort of floating these things because we decided that we wanted to spend $3,000 extra a week on whatever that didn't make any, didn't recoup its cost, right? Um, 
Right. So yeah. that's a big part of it. And, and, and truly trying to hit home with, on cooks with that. And, and not only that, but just like, I know food waste is sort of like the trend du jour, but like not even so much food waste, but just like portioning and controlling your cost and not over prepping or not under prepping because cooks love to over prep just so nobody, nothing gets 86 and nobody gets yelled at. You know what I mean? But like, do we right. really need 80 of these going into on a Saturday night or is 60 of them going to be more than, you know, going to get us within five orders of that. Um, right. And trying to get cooks to understand that because that difference of leaving the weekend with a couple extra orders versus 20 is, is major. That's yeah. Profit. <laughs> so it, it's sort of like, dialing these things in for me on the back end and, and, you know, working within the, the set menu format can get tricky because, you know, we, the price has gone up since we've opened, but I don't know that there's much, I think we've kind of hit the ceiling on where we want to be uh, in terms of charging $64 for a five course menu. Um, I think going up any further than that is going to alienate a large part of the clientele. Um, it's approachable. It's enough that, you know, a 23 year old, couple can come in for their birthday and make that their one big meal for the year um but it has its limitations you know working five courses into that uh while i would say in, in most markets or larger markets it would be a steal right um it, it's yeah that's a, it's that's sort a of steal. where yeah Anywhere right we, it's sort of where we hit i think kind of max out so staying creative and being able to change things within in that can get a little challenging at times on the back end. Um, it's not a matter of creative power. It's more of what can we use within that cost spectrum and still provide diners. You know, we, uh, another rule of being in, in sort of the Midwest is if we do a five course tasting menu and it's like, it's eight bites, um, we're screwed, right? Like people have to leave fulfilled and satiated and at least a little full um if 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 right. we get the reputation that it's it's delicious and it's fun and it's amazing but you have to you know grab a slice of pizza or a burger afterwards we are like yeah that's not good um yeah that's not good not right the so you know being able to not only do five courses for 65 bucks but making sure that the, the portion size hits those marks um is a challenge, you know what I mean? Both front end and back, back end sort of financial side of it. So um, dialing those things in is really key for me and the cooks and, and all of that. So I'm about to ask you a question that um, I hate when people ask me. Um, so I'm going to apologize in advance, but I think uh, for you, it's an interesting question. Sure. Um, describe your food. <sighs> What's your, what is, what is Ryan Santos style you know three years in that's still like the hardest sentence to kind of put together for their restaurant it's so hard um it's just so because hard, we don't really <laughs> we don't really adhere to any one or two or three sort of culinary perspectives in terms of being italian or french or japanese right. or whatever and you know with maybe some maturity of being here for three years i don't also think that we're like a modern restaurant i don't really know what that means but um or, yep. or new American, those things, those, those things that people tend to label don't really make a whole lot of sense for me. Um, so yep. it, it's still really challenging. 
I don't know. I would say, yeah, you know, it, we, it makes it easier into... for people to categorize, but that's about it. Yeah. Right? I mean, the heart of, of, I guess, of what we do is, is we try and make creative and delicious food uh, that's sort of inspired both by, you know, where we are, the kind of tri-state or the Ohio River Valley, however you want to look at it, um, and beyond, because not all the things that are grown locally here are that great of quality. Some are amazing and, and some aren't. Right. So sometimes we need to reach further um, because uh, we're not diehard locavores, um, even though as much as I believe in that movement and, and love it, you know, the local peaches that we got in this year were just straight trash. Um, <laughs> and as, as nice as yeah. it is to say that they're Ohio or local or Kentucky or Indiana peaches, um, they're not good. <laughs> Yeah, if they if they if they if, you know, if they fucking suck, you can't write the trashy Ohio right. Pieces, so right, it, that balance is hard in, in describing the food because I think diners and clientele want that a lot, right? Um, but kind of sometimes telling them that like the ones that are local coming in this year suck is a conversation you can't really have, right? Um, right. Or although although you kind of can because it kind of gives you some 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 street cred right. right where you're like you're like look pizzas suck right now and and i haven't found a good one um i don't know i find diners kind of have a little elevated respect sure. for you if you can say that you know so yeah i mean we try and you know we buy the the best quality of what is you know this is the sort of standard chef mantra i guess but the best quality ingredients right. that we can within our our price scope right we um and sometimes we we make uh, allowances on some things that we really really are passionate about um, like the ohio sakura wagyu beef that's coming out of you know out of ohio near columbus um is really really special um and it's one of those things where like okay we this like astronomically in terms of taste and quality trumps the steak that we had on on the tasting menu so we need to figure out how we put it on right um, and not just serve like two little slices. Um, uh, yeah. How do you, so how do you do that? You just, you, you adjust the portion size or you adjust sort of um, what the first or second courses sort of are. And obviously in the summertime, that's a little right. easier because produce is great and relatively inexpensive on some things. So it's an embarrassment. It, of riches. it makes it really easy in the summertime In the winter, it gets a little more difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, we try and source anything, the best quality, you know, I'm big on, on sustainably and responsibly raised proteins or things coming from the ocean. Um, so yeah, we, we don't, we try and order all our fish that are responsible, either if they're farmed, they're responsibly raised in, 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 in a way that makes sense beyond just sort of fish farming. Um, we do try and source wild otherwise. Uh, never really skews one way or the other it's sort of always like what's the highest quality and, and what's you know also the best practiced in terms of catch and responsibility for those sort of things because i think right uh i think fish is becoming a, a, a really hard subject to to go into or just you know product from the ocean don't is, open is, 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 don't it, open a sushi bar bro I, <laughs> I know. I <laughs> <laughs> I opened a sushi bar at the absolute worst yeah. in the history of fish. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation, right? 
Yeah. So, you know, we usually only have one, one fish dish on the menu and it's usually a la carte and that obviously can sub in on the tasting menu for pescatarians, but, um, yeah, and we try and find ways to incorporate seafood in, in, a, in a smaller way, whether it's batarga or things like that that are cured and preserved and sort of have a sustainable life. Um, and same thing with proteins. And it's, that's all these things, you know, the, the beef coming out of, from, out of Columbus is the closest sort of protein that we source. Otherwise, everything else is coming a bit further. Just it's a challenge here because <clears throat> there may be farms practicing the, the sort of raising and and, and heredity and all the qualities that we look for in proteins, but just can't keep up with the, even, even if we kind of make the cost work, just can't keep up with the quantity that we go through, even in a tiny restaurant. Um, so we generally have to look further. So long, yeah, we find long winded, you know, it's, we try and cook creative and delicious food, uh, from things that inspire us both here. And, and first we look regionally and then we look sort of further to the coast and then if we have to we look further but we generally stay here so who who has had the greatest impact on your sort of your creativity as a chef who i'm um, sorry who has had an impact yeah yeah who has um, had the the most impact? i mean kevin had a uh, kevin had a great one just in terms of speed and creativity it's something we like really really have dialed in at the the restaurant for ourselves and having 31 seats, you know, on a Saturday night, you want to get as many people in as possible. So um, our right. tasting menu, you know, for a table for two, if they're moving along, we can get them out in an hour 15, hour and a half. I mean, our turn times are set for, for a table for two for a tasting menu at about an hour and 45 minutes and two hours for four mm -hmm. or more. Um, because we are, it's a quick menu, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's designed to sort of bang out in their in the kitchen with our little bit of resource um because it's just the again if we want to do 60 or 70 or 80 people on a saturday night it has to go that fast you know what i mean um so he inspired me in that in terms of being creative but also not taking 15 minutes to execute every single dish um <laughs> yeah. and then i mean other than that the biggest one was was working with john shields um, I stashed a couple times at townhouse during its, its life. Um, and just had a really great connection with John from various skill levels when I entered to when, you know, I sort of left and then coming back for his Riverstead project is just sort of like, I see John's doing something. So I want to be involved. Um, and then, excuse me, that him turn, turning into him asking me to just be the suit, the, the only other staffed kitchen member, the sous chef at that project for its year and a half run um, sort of blew my mind. You know what I mean? I was ready to go and stage every, for, for all of them. Um, and just his approach. And again, it's this, you know, at Riverside, it was just me and John in the kitchen with whatever stages we could line up um, every week. Um, and being so one-on-one uh, -on -one with him and, and seeing his creative process and also him, being so generous in letting me participate in the conversation of creativity and, and the dishes um, sort of really, really changed my cooking career. Um, I always admired, yeah, I always you admired can, John. You can definitely like John, see. John was the chef that I was like from afar seeing these like townhouse things sort of pop up. Like it was just the, 
the level of creativity was like nothing I had seen from any other chef in the country. And it wasn't yeah. gimmicky and it wasn't, you know, some of those things had a lot of gimmick to them or I don't know, tongue in cheek sort of approach to it where John's food was so immensely creative and I couldn't even wrap my head around it. And when and first seeing it, but then also experiencing and seeing it was rooted in like such a level of deliciousness um, was like that final piece that just sort of put it all together. It, it just really, really changed my entire perspective. Yeah. I, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around John's food. I'm not going to lie. I, you what? I, I'm sorry. I you broke not, up a little bit. Yeah. I, I haven't, um, I still haven't been able to wrap my head around John's food. Um, it, it, every time I see one of his dishes, it's literally kind of like mind blown. You know, I'm just like, man, how did he think through, you know, what was that thought process? But I see a lot of, of, uh, influence, uh, of, from him on you. I mean, your, your food is it never lacks an in interest, right? It's, it's always very, very interesting. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, being at, at Riverstead, the, you know, it was sort of the end of, before making the decision if I was going to kind of do my own thing, like pursue doing my own thing, not knowing if that would actually happen or not, or go with him to Chicago um, and open Smith. Um, again, it was sort of not just a decision of career choice, but also uh, limitations of my health and knowing that, you know, that was a, uh, what, four years ago, five years ago, um, that if I was going to continue to cook that I, I would have to, own something of my own where I could set the schedule, right? Like if I couldn't come in on a Tuesday or a Wednesday because I wasn't feeling great, there wasn't a, a, a job where I wasn't the owner um, where you could have that flexibility, right? Um, so it was sort of made on that. But yeah, I mean, uh, the food at Riverstead was, we had no limitations, right? I mean, there was, we were cooking for 18 people three nights a week. It, it, we could do whatever John could think of, or I could think of, or we could smash our heads together and come up with. Um, but I also knew in, in terms of leaving Riverstead that that level and high end of food was not really what, where I wanted to go, right? I was starting to feel that, that burnout of prior to that, spending some time staging in Europe, the three Michelin or two Michelin or whatever it may be. It was just not a level that I really was aspiring to cook for anymore. I thought, you know, for most of my career, that's where I wanted to be. And sort of realizing that wasn't what I wanted to do. And also knowing that I was probably coming back to Cincinnati to pursue opening something, that it wasn't something that I really thought you could do here either. Um, so it's been distilling some of, a lot of what John was doing and, and taught me, but sort of distilling it into a way that makes sense here, right? Like, for me, talking to somebody who owns a sushi bar in the Midwest, uni and crab and stuff like that don't really make sense here on my menu. You know what I mean? Um, I do. Yeah, I know exactly what you even, mean. Even <laughs> we had, you know, there have been all these sort of self-imposed bans on things at the restaurant from day one that have all either been completely torn up or have been put into place. And I'm sure at some place, at some point forward, we'll get thrown away. But, you know, at first it was like, we're not going to do uni we're not going to do seaweeds we're not going to do this and that like minimal shellfish we're going to find you know pretty well-known fish you know halibut and salmon and things like that because i just think that's where 
not only where, where the, the, the clientele is comfortable with, and also like, why does seaweed on a menu make sense in Cincinnati, Ohio, right? Uh, um, if we're, if we're like, if our concept is not a sushi bar, right, we're trying to do something that reflects more of the vegetables yeah, and what's course. around, right? Um, yeah, we're, we're honoring, we're honoring a culture, right? With a sushi bar, you're honoring a culture. At least that's how, how we sort of, we, we sure. paint it. Um, yeah. And you're not, you're not necessarily honoring that culture. So you're not, you're not bound by sort of the same, same laws, right? And I just also, it was, it was sort of distilling that last experience with John. It was sort of like, where do we want to take our creative risks and where don't we? Right. Like, so for us, it's like the choice of proteins, not really the creative risk. Like if you can introduce, you know, beef, pork, halibut, salmon, whatever. And uh, obviously there are times we work outside those things, but if you can make the protein, the comfortable entry level and, and the, the sort of flavors around it, the more creative part, it, it, it's sort of how we bridge that gap here in introducing people to flavors and, and, and ingredients they might, may not be familiar with. Um, yeah, you but if we do an uni focused dish, right? like even bringing in a tray or two, we'll never even, we'll not even put a dent in it. You know what I mean? Like, um, because it's, it's a thing that maybe a handful of people might want throughout the week, but you know, it's, 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 it's shelf life is so short in the concept. It doesn't make sense in, in terms of approach, like introducing people to it and sort of incorporating it into our menu. Yeah. So, so how, um, you know, we, we talked, uh, we touched on this a little bit in a text, um, how has your food been received in Cincinnati? And because I know the answer to the, your, to this question, the follow-up question is, is um, how did you achieve that? Right. I mean, you guys are, your restaurant's doing well, you're, you're a busy restaurant. You're doing food that um, I don't think is, you can consider um, sort of a typical Midwestern fare by any means. Sure. Right. So how do you, how do you get people to come along on that journey with you? I mean, I think I touched on some of these points, right? Like diners can't leave hungry um, if they're doing the tasting menu and if they're doing the a la carte menu, you know, sort of making sure that the front house is making the right suggestion and how much to order. Um, I, I think, you know, like I said, the sort of approachable protein choice with the, with the things around it being the more creative right. aspect has really helped. And that's to say like almost three years in, I can say these things now, they, even though I was preaching them to myself and to my staff on day one, I don't know that we've always adhered to that. Um, even though I was constantly saying that's what we were doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think keeping cost approachable in some sense, I, I think people look, I, I never wanted to be in a special occasions restaurant um, in terms of price point, I think we still kind of ride that balance a little bit. Um, you know, when we first opened, it was just tasting menu. Um, and then it was tasting menu was sort of a couple choices in for each course. Um, and then now in its more in its fullest form, which it's been in for, I don't know, half the time, I'd say like a year and a half. Um, it's been, you know, sort of set tasting menu, um, with a full a la carte, well, I'd say like an eight, eight option a la carte menu on the side. 
Um, and that's one both out of like, not only wanting to be just a tasting menu restaurant, um, and also sort of like we talked about with brunch at the very beginning of sometimes there were things that we wanted to play with that either cost wise or just flow of tasting menu didn't work within that, that scope. Um, so it gave us an outlet for those dishes there. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of always just kind of, it, at first it was sort of judging clientele sort of reaction a little bit. And, you know, I think, I think doing yeah. a pop-up, doing pop-ups here for a, a year or two before was super helpful. Um, and just in terms yeah, of like, risk, well, right? not only is it low risk, but like a lot of the stuff that I was doing at the pop-ups was way too esoteric um, or theoretical or conceptual um, to do at the restaurant. I didn't know that at the time, but I learned that during the pop-ups, right? People enjoy these things because they're one-off experiences and that sort of thing. But it, 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 it forced some maturity in actually looking at like, what are, what are the dishes that when people come to the, the pop-up, are they reacting to, right? They're also really creative, but some are like way out there and some probably fall within the purview of what we do now. And sort of finding that, being able to find that sort of maturity before opening the restaurant was really helpful. And, I, and not just yeah, cooking in, yeah. in another restaurant here in town and figuring that out because I, I you know, I, I be wanting to do something that was different than anything else here. It took like sort of getting those bad Noma ripoffs out or that, you know what I mean? Like these sort of conceptual, like this is a salmon crudo that looks like a rock or a twig that's made out of <laughs> something that, you know, on the menu it says it tastes like, but it doesn't actually taste like anything, right? Um, <laughs> And so, so that was exactly my big thing. And, and, and even in my eating, like before, like kind of coinciding with that and like dining around, like, and, and touch, touching on that sort of like burnout of like really high end restaurants. There were like these things on the menu that sounded so phenomenal. And then you get them and be like, I don't taste two thirds of the things that are in this, like that are on this dish. Right. Um, and so it sort of all kind of came together and, and, and one, it let me get those bad versions of things out. And it also sort of let me fine tune into what people re were reacting to that were still creative. Like, you know, one dish that still finds its way on and off the menu at the restaurant, even though um, I've sworn it's not coming back, uh, is like a, a noki mushroom dish. And that came from the, the pop-up days. It's just sort of noki mushrooms cooked down in walnut milk and compte and fermented turnip brine. And it's essentially like a very savory mushroom pasta just with the long strands of the enoki being, being the pasta, right? Because I, I, I've had it and it's delicious. And it's this thing that like, it was off the radar, right? Like really different for here, creative in some sense. And people loved it. And I found that out at the pop-up, right? And so like it started, I was able to start fine tuning like, okay, this dish is creative, but it's also just like inherently really delicious, right? It's packed with umami. It's like cooked in walnut, you know, there are just these things that like make it different. And these are the things that people react to. They, don't, they could give a shit less about this like twig or thing that looks like something else or birch thing that doesn't taste like birch. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it didn't make <laughs> sense, right? It just sort of was like, oh, I see this sort of going on in the world and, and want to 
play with it, but it really doesn't make any sense for me or tell my story or represent where we are. So it was able to, it let me sort of fine tune those dishes that people were inherently really loving and reacting to and seeing that like these esoteric things that made zero sense um, on the menu were things I should just sort of not do. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I always say that one of the things that sets uh, a great chef apart from uh, a chef is how they write a menu, right? It's one thing to, to create a, a, a great dish, like a truly great dish. Um, but how you fit that into a menu and how you write a menu and build a menu um, really, really kind of is where you're, you make your bones, right? It's, 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 it's kind of like when you know, yeah, this guy is really doing something special. And I always find your menus when I'm, when I'm reading through your menus, they're always just incredible. It feels like there's this, this real harmony. Um, I see some sort of some bridges in places from one dish to another. So how do you think through writing menus? What's your, what's your process? In terms of putting together a menu? Yeah. Um... I don't know, you know, like when we kind of switched, uh, one big thing that inspired sort of really setting the menu in place as like the five course tasting menu is the five course tasting menu. There aren't options, there aren't subs, that sort of thing is, is wanting to be one of the few places here that incorporated, that offered wine pairings just because I sort of also fell in love with wine through this process um, and wanting to be able to show that that sort of broad scope too, you know what I mean? Um, and, and showcasing wines that a lot of people don't drink and that I really, really love. But writing a menu, I don't know, like there's a little bit of it systemized at this point in terms of like how we sort of fill dishes in or, or what format they take, right? Like, you know, the tasting menu will never put a steak on the, on the a la carte menu or even probably any sort of cooked beef dish just because the time to really prepare it correctly needs that that half hour to 45 minutes from when the tape comes in to really cook it correctly. Um, Cause right. we, we, we don't like in maturity. I also like, have, we just don't really sous vide anything. Um, it's sort of kind of coming full circle back to sort of like working in a French bistro, like just wanting to cook real food um, and not relying on circulators. Like, if we're going to, if we're going to put a steak on the menu, like we're putting a steak on the menu and it's being cooked from raw, same thing with fish, same thing. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I think that probably bridges back to the last conversation of like, how do things sort of resonate with the clientele here? I think like as creative as the food is, it's, there's not, there's no really like parlor tricks, right? There's, it's all sort of rooted in really classic cooking, whether it's Berblanc just with vegetable juice or fruit juice instead, or, cooking things from raw. I think that just uh, whether, whether people notice that or not, I think it, it, people connect and resonate with that a little bit more than a halibut that's been sous vide for 10 minutes and is yeah, seared in a pan. And I don't know. I, I'm sure it's, it, it's textually great or delicious, but maybe it's just not the same as cooking from raw. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the way we read a menu is the, the tasting menu, while it's completely set, it also is designed to absorb every single allergy or dietary restriction possible. Um, and that's obviously you're very sensitive to that. Yeah. I mean, so, from, from um, opening, uh, and also, you know, working in, in, whether it was with John, who was 
you know, I would say more, more, um, more open to cooking for people who came with dietary restrictions than other chefs that I'd worked for, or even restaurants I had gone and eaten at. But this sort of like, there was, I think right before the restaurant opened, or maybe even prior, there was sort of this tyranny in restaurants, especially in tasting menu restaurants, where it was like, you either, you can come eat the menu, but if you don't eat any, like, if you, there's any sort of restriction, like, go fuck yourself, right? Like, it was sort of this, <laughs> yeah. like, insane Those, days, those like, days are kind of over, though, aren't they? Those days are what? I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Those those days are over, generally speaking, aren't they? Are they're over? I think. I mean, maybe at some of the highest level, but like, it was just this, it's just so insane to me. I don't know. It just never really connected with me, especially in, and I'm glad it did right before I opened the restaurant. And maybe it has to do with my past in, in formerly, formerly sort of having dietary restrictions. Um, not that I do anymore. There are obviously things I avoid, but generally I, I go out to eat so little that when I do, I don't really mind so much. Um, that like these chefs who are, who are supposed to be the most talented and skilled in the country or in the world are just like can't cook for a vegetarian. Like that seems so <laughs> insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't. They can't whip something up real fast. It's not even that. Right. But if, even if they're requiring you to make a reservation for two days ahead or three, whatever it might be, like, right? You can't. You can't make a vegetarian menu. Like, and I get sometimes it's annoying making you know two two things of one thing, but like or of a menu for a week. But it was just I, I just it, I felt this disconnect from chefs who are famed and lauded for their their talents and skills, but couldn't cook for anybody outside of the things that they specifically wanted to cook. So when we opened, I was like, we will accommodate everything, right? That's my job as, as a chef and also somebody who, who's in the past dealt with these things. Like, I know how, how much it sucks if you're on dietary restrictions to go out to eat. I even occasionally, like, we'll go out to eat and be like, is there anything on the dessert menu that's dairy-free, right? Like, not even, like, testing people, but just sort of, like, not wanting, like, wanting something lighter, Right. And they're just like, no. And you're like, what? Like, how do you, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how did that like even a, a scoop of sorbet? Like, so when people who come in that are vegan or don't do dairy, your answer is just no, right? So, um, so before we had sort of like different menus for each thing, but now we've sort of just incorporated it into the single tasting menu, right? We have ways that we either sub things in or a lot of the times we just make menus that that's inspired sort of the food that we do right like do we need to be putting dairy in this or like why is there there's not a whole lot of gluten in the food that i do already right so it's why it's already super it's it's really close so if we have a decision to make between like putting something in that's breadcrumbs versus like i don't know like the little kikos the like crunchy corn like if we can do those those have great flavor in the summertime and, and they provide a similar crunch like why don't we just go choose that instead right so we 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 every night we have a vegan tasting a vegetarian tasting um with an off menu kind of veg entree um the pescatarian usually subs in whatever fish we have on the a la carte menu um and then an omnivore menu and then be, within that we can do you know nut free dairy free pork-free, shellfish, you pretty much name it. It's, it, it. it's sort of designed to be all-encompassing. So we make purees that are full with dairy and, and dairy-free ones and stuff like that. And it's really not that hard to do. Like, it's not 
and it doesn't also cost an arm and a leg. Um, and it's great. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have so many regular diners who are vegan, which are sort of, for whatever reason, have become like the annoyance of every chef. Like to, to me, it was both one, wanting to cater to those people because I've gone through similar experiences, but also two, as like a owner seeing that like, this is such an untapped clientele. Like right. vegans have disposable income, right? They have all these things that everybody else does and they have no, generally they don't have like a nicer restaurant to go to, right? It's, it's either like a crunchy granola place or a juice place or, you know, a place that maybe has like a vegan ramen or something. Right. And that's maybe their only option, but like, where do they want to go on their birthday or their anniversary or for like a date night out on a Saturday night. Right. And so it was, it was sort of a, a combination of the two of like, I would love to cater to these people because I've experienced these things. And also like, these are clientele. This is, these are groups of clientele. They're also not being catered to generally at all. Um, and we should welcome that. Right. If we're, if, and it's a rapidly growing population. Yeah, I mean, now it's so too. common. At first, it, was, it seemed like it was a little bit different, but I just think there's so many people that fall into these categories. It was like, if we're going to be creative and, and maybe push the boundaries here and, and maybe be a little uncomfortable for people to come to, if we design this to also really accommodate to a lot of people that don't have a lot of options, like that helps us on, in terms of on a business side, right? Like it opens us up to more diners um, that we can then prove we make really delicious food, right? And then kind of keep those, that clientele coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last great thing you ate. Um, I'm obsessed with this. Where you were, where, go ahead. Yeah, where you were just blown away. Where you were just like, man, this is, this is amazing. Hmm. I was going to answer with like favorite food, but I don't know if that's like, it blows my mind. Uh, or favorite thing to eat here, but I don't know if that blows my mind. Um... I feel like I had my mind blown a, uh, a bit at my last meal at Rolf and Daughters under Mark I was for my birthday last year. So last December, just like the creativity and like this, the seasoning on everything, just like it hurt a little bit. Right. It was like so perfect. It was like, just, just <laughs> not too salty. Right. Like perfectly that. And like the fat and acid on everything was just like right there where it's like a titch more would like make the, would would get the scent back from most people but it was yeah. like so so dialed in that it was just like everything like hurt my heart as a chef because it was just like so on the nose seasoned and perfect all, all while yeah. being like also like really creative and interesting and different and like falling into that category when when something's on the menu it says like it has this in it like you can taste that element in it and it's present and a real integral part of the dish um, and it all is there for a reason. Like it just like, it, I still am a little like sad about it just cause it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I, I, they're doing some pretty incredible things over there. Generally speaking anyway. I mean, it's definitely a restaurant. I, I yeah. think a lot of people are watching that restaurant right now. And I just like, I come back and I'm like, I want this dish, like this dish is good, but I want season like, like Mark at Rolf would season it. And it's just like insane. This is an insane, like, ghost stuck in my head now. <laughs> um, so the last thing that you cooked that you were most proud of. So what, at the what, restaurant the or last at dish? home or what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the restaurant. 
Um, it's a hard question. It is. Isn't it? I mean, I think so. We, ha- we I talked sort of about like these self-constrained rules that we put on ourselves, and then magically they're all of a sudden what we do. When we first opened, like we, I was like, no pasta ever, right? Like every restaurant has pasta, like never. And then like at home, I became obsessed with pasta, not only making it, but just like cooking it and like getting the sauce right and all that sort of like the perfect consistency. And so now we have pasta at the restaurant and it started off very rudimentary. And now we have like a very nice extruder, um, which maybe reflects some maturity on myself of like not putting these insane restrictions on myself and just kind of cooking what I want at the moment. But I'm, I'm proud of the pastas that we do at the restaurant. I think they're really well made. I think they're creative and interesting and, and they're never just sort of like cacio pepe or something. They're, they always still have a point of view and like our, what we do, but instead of, you know, making zoodles and doing it with that, we're, we've matured enough that we're just going to actually make pasta because that's what's more delicious. So I think I'm probably proud of, and, and you know, it's something we, in the, I'd say the last six months, we've started incorporating in the restaurant and uh, seeing it, we were actually talking to my sous chef, like seeing where we started with it six months ago to where it is now is, is, is something really amazing and we kind of take a lot of pride in now. What, uh, what's your, what pasta dish are you currently offering? Um, excuse me. Um, we're doing like a, a rye pasta, uh, extruded uh, spatulatelli noodle with like a kale sauce and lots of Aleppo pepper in it and lemon juice and uh, batarga and preserved lemon. Um, not necessarily the most revolutionary like concept but it's just like really really delicious and it's also like a really fun food wine so it makes it fun for the pairings too um but they change i mean we've done anything from uh you know like a chamomile and saffron pink peppercorn sort of sauce for with sunchoke pasta um what else we did like a, a sweet corn and, and and miso pasta which again I feel like the pastas right now are maybe not the most creative because it's the summertime and, and it's great. It's to let like corn and, and green greens right. and things right. shine. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about making like a paprika pasta dough to extrude to work with like a sweet potato sauce, juice sauce with, um, I don't know, leeks and who knows what else. Um, it's just a fun way I, I, I feel now it, it's more inspiring for me to come up with vegetarian or vegetable kind of driven dishes with a pasta scope. Um, we always have one on the tasting menu and one on the, on the a la carte menu now. Um, oh, so you went from no pasta to two. Yeah. Pastas. We went from no pastas to like within two <laughs> with, within like a month of like starting to make pasta at the restaurant, like jumping in and buying like a Arco Bolena extruder and having two pastas on the menu, which is sort of yeah. like, again, yeah, it's like what I kind of, it's like sort of the maturity thing, right? Like at first I was like, we're never doing this. And like then sort of finding as to keep myself engaged as a chef and creative, like found myself flipping through pasta books and, and sort of really kind of falling in love with it in just terms of something that I hadn't really done in my career. And, and also had told myself we're well, never going to do. It's sort of like, but why? Um, right. And, yeah, it's great that you can challenge yourself that way. You know, I mean, that's that's part of the creative process is challenging your your sort of long held norms. Sure. Yeah. And it, 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 it sort of like I said, I think it's just a bit of maturity. And it's also too like sort of 
like we touched on earlier, like how do we put that steak on is, is by having a second course be a pasta, right? Like on the back end, it, it's, it's how you sort of balance these things. Um, where like shaving of eight cases of some vegetable into some similar version of a pasta that doesn't really do that, right? Both on time and labor and cost and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's, it's also, again, it, 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 I mean, all these things sort of loop together, right? It's, it's, it's a way to in, introduce flavors. People are comfortable with pasta, right? And as they are with some of the proteins that we choose to pick. Um, and it may be, it's an, easy, it's an easier way to sort of gateway into a different flavor profile than they're comfortable with by presenting them in a form that they are. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Get, them, uh, get them hooked on the, uh, the halibut, and then you can sort of slide the the cool little sort of esoteric sort of sauce in on the side. Yep. Right. So, um, all right. I, I mentioned this in the intro, but, um, I, I love your cocktails. Uh, every time I, I, I've been in Cincinnati, since you've been open, I almost always stop in for a cocktail. Um, yep. Are you, so one of the things I always find is that your, uh, your, your cocktail program always seems to be, in harmony with your food menu. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made me ask the question, are you also behind the create the creative process of the, of the cocktail program? I am for the most part. I mean, whoever is sort of yeah. our lead bartender, we always, I, I don't just like in the kitchen, it's, it's not an Island of me. It's sort of like, you know, I come to the table with some ideas uh, let the bartenders come to the table with some ideas. And usually we meet somewhere in the middle in terms of, what goes on the menu or who puts something on the menu, but generally it's the two of us sitting down and kind of working through cocktails as chefs and sous chefs and cooks do with dishes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, I've never been a big cocktail person myself, but like, it's, it's just another Avenue that creatively, like it switches things as I feel like I'm constantly looping back around on things on this conversation, but um, fla well, flavor, like maybe a dish, a dish or a pastry or something never really quite found its way onto the menu, or we can never quite get it where, to the place where we thought it could go on the menu. But it doesn't mean that those fla that flavor profile doesn't work, right? It was never the flavor profile that wasn't working. It was just we could never find the right, right cookies of right. forms for everything to fit into. So sometimes it'll be like, well, we didn't get this like apricot ginger thing on the dessert menu but like so why don't we reimagine that as maybe something that can go on a cocktail menu um and that's where i start to pull on place from places is, is maybe flavor combinations that either won't fit onto the menu or maybe have just had failed attempts to quite make it onto the menu um right and find another place for those that flavor profile yeah, you can iterate it in another way, and it sort of has a life of its own again. Yeah, and it's also, like, I, I want to make sure, I mean, we're a restaurant first and foremost, so I want to make sure that the, the cocktails are, are food-friendly, right? And, and they have to, you have to be able to enjoy them. This isn't a steakhouse, so you're not drinking, you know, bourbon and, and martinis and, and Manhattans, even though people do, and I think that's great because you should drink whatever you want. But if you're going to drink off our cocktail menu, it should be cohesive and work with the food and sort of amplify it or work well with it or complement it or contrast it just in the way that you would order a glass of wine or have the wine pairings would do with the food. 
Well, you're achieving that, Chef, because I'm always, uh, I love your cocktail program. I've, in fact, I, I've told my bartenders at Libertine uh, on several occasions to, to peep your Instagram, like, man, look at, look at the, the cocktails they're doing over here in Cincinnati. <laughs> so, so we're getting inspired from what you're doing in Cincinnati. But it's, sure. it's, just, it's the same thing, though, right? It's like, as long as it's delicious, people in the end, it might, you might have to train the servers or the bartenders to sort of like, help people take that last 10% leap. But like, there's a cocktail on our menu that's green chartreuse, yellow chartreuse, uh, a sorrel puree, and tapache. So it's literally like, and tapache is like a fermented pineapple drink that we make. It's literally four things that people don't know what they are at all, but it's one of our most popular cocktails because the servers get behind it. They know it's delicious and they put it in front of people and they like, they fall in love with it too. Yeah, they're totally bought in. Well, Chef, uh, I appreciate you taking some time. I, I said it was going to be an hour. Uh, I've taken up an hour and seven minutes. So, um, and I know you've got a busy service uh, to look forward to tomorrow. But, um, hey, man, thanks so much. Uh, this has been a real treat to sort of hear your point of view. And um, I've been wanting to do this for a long time with you. So uh, I really awesome. appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm glad, glad we did it. I'm happy to yeah, I'm glad we time. got to connect. Now, now we now we need to actually cook together know, right? someday. We we've only been talking about it now for two years. <laughs> well, let's make it happen. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to figure out a way to make it happen. All right, chef, I appreciate it. Yep, thanks, thanks for having me. All Bye. right, be well. Thanks for listening to Omakase with Neil Brown. You can find our podcast across all streaming platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You know how we chefs love five stars, right? Also, feel free to share this podcast. It really helps us grow our audience, and frankly, we're just trying to get our message out to as many people as we can. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more conversations with some of Indy's most insightful and creative people. Thanks again.